You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tracy Diamond from the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and welcome to Writers Live. Kathleen Hall Jamison, the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor of Communication at the Annenberg School for Communication of the University of Pennsylvania, um, is also the director of its Annenberg Public Policy Center. Among her award-winning Oxford University Press books are Packaging the Presidency, Eloquence in an Electronic Age, Spiral of Cynicism, and the Obama Victory. Tonight, we'll hear her talk from and about Cyberwar, how Russian hackers and trolls helped elect a president, what we know, or sorry, what we don't, can't, and do know, where she draws on path-breaking work in which she and her colleagues isolated significant communication effects in the 2000 and 2008 presidential campaigns. Jameson explains how by changing the behavior of key players and altering the focus and content of mainstream news, Russian hackers reshaped the 2016 electoral dynamic. So it's sure to be a very interesting conversation, so please give a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for coming out on a really bitterly cold evening. And thank you to the C-SPAN book viewers. I hope you're in a warm place and one in which you have a hot drink in front of you because this is a genuinely depressing topic. <laughs> Let me start with a predicate, which is the 2016 was an unusual year. I don't expect you to dispute that idea. But let me tell you why, from a communication standpoint, that it was an unusual year. Ordinarily, when we study communication and politics, we pretty much can say that by the conventions, you know who's likely to win the election. And you can do that because you have enough people who are tied to political party to say that, yeah, basically, if they like the candidate of their party, they're highly likely to vote for their party. There's a big enough distance between the candidates pretty likely that the person who's got the largest party identification and is the most popular in the vote is likely to win the election. There are years that are exceptions, however, in which the election is extremely close. And when the election is close, communication is more likely to matter. But that's not the only reason that 2016 is a unique year. 2016 is a unique year because there were conditions that made communication more likely to have an effect on vote rather than less likely. The first is very high levels of absentee balloting, with absentee balloting occurring during a period in which you had very high levels of media coverage of Russian hacking, and you had high amounts of Russian troll activity in cyberspace. So ordinarily, there wouldn't be enough voters there to persuade, but since you had absentee balloting and it was tied to a very high level of undecided voting, it means that anything that comes into the communication environment in that last month or so has a greater chance of being able to change the vote than it would, for example, if we were all voting on election day and those things were happening, say, a month earlier. So it's the combination of high levels of absentee balloting and a high number of undecideds. As we're closing into the last weeks of the election, it's almost one in eight. And then there are other factors that are at play as well. Party is what holds people pretty much to their vote. 
on average, about nine out of 10 Democrats, that is, you say you're a Democrat, are gonna vote for the Democratic candidate. They may waffle, but they're eventually pretty likely to vote for the Democrat. About nine out of 10 of the Republicans, those people say, I'm a Republican, are likely to vote for the Republican. Well, we in 2016 had a higher than average number of people who said, I'm neither one of those, I'm an independent. Those people are more likely to be able to be persuaded because they're less tied down by party. And you had one other factor, and it's a factor that I don't expect anybody to think is controversial, which is there just wasn't a great deal of affection for either of the two major party nominees. There were a lot of people who, when they had their vote in hand and they were absentee balloting, or they went into the ballot box, were kind of holding their nose even as they cast their vote. And under those circumstances, it's a more difficult vote to cast. That means you might decide to stay home. It might be harder to get you out to vote. And also, remember, we have higher than average numbers of undecideds. We have higher than average numbers of independents. And during this whole last month, we have absentee balloting. So if something major happens and people have that ballot in hand, the communication stimulus can create an effect. So in this electoral context, the question is, did the Russian interventions do enough to change 78,000 votes in three key states? Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Donald Trump won the Electoral College, and he did it by capturing three decisive battleground states. There are all sorts of other factors, of course, that are at play in the election. And it's easy to say, well, I know why the outcome occurred the way it did. It was something Hillary Clinton did, something she said, or something Donald Trump did that people really liked, or, or, or. And so I need to set up a situation in which we specify all of that is going to happen and it's all baked in. It's not going to change. Because what I'm going to ask is, if you held all those things constant, everything that was good or bad that any of the candidates did, you just assume they were going to happen anyway. They're just going to sit there. Is there enough difference with the Russian interventions to push 78,000 votes in one direction or another? It's not a very big number, but it's not a small number either. But what I don't and can't say is that all these other factors might not have played some role in the election. They obviously did. They got us to where we were, where 78,000 votes were still at issue. And the question is, what pushed those votes, if anything, and was it the Russians? So I'm not going to make a case conclusively that the Russians did it. I'm going to make the case that I think there's a pretty strong argument that they may have. I'm going to make a case for probability, not for certainty. And that's the reason for asking the question the way I have. I've asked the question, how did Russian hackers and trolls help elect a president? Because all those other factors are there. And because there is no evidence, at least not in the public domain, that the Russians directly intervened by actually changing votes. They did get access to registration systems, but as far as we know from our national security folks, they didn't actually change ballots. So you can't say they elected because they didn't pull levers. And you can't say they elected because all these other factors are there. The question is, did they help? Did they tip the balance in order to move the 78,000 votes? And that's the question I'm going to ask. As the author of earlier other books and as an elderly woman, I don't usually have new experiences. Usually, my life is pretty predictable. I teach, I research, I have a great family, I play with my grandchildren, I am you know, grateful on any given day that I wake up feeling healthy and can walk because I've had a couple of back surgeries. So that's my typical life. 
I don't expect to be surprised by anything. I was surprised by this. Uh, there is another uh, hilarious quote from there. He's quoted someone named Kathleen Hall Jameson, who is a legend in the political circles of Washington. Russians persuaded enough people in the right states to vote a certain way. And on the same day, we have this revelation from the US court that they're indicting seven more Russian uh, intelligence officers. So we had 13 indicted a few months ago. Now we have seven more. 20 people persuaded 300 million Americans in the right states to vote in a certain way, or, she writes, persuaded people not to vote at all. So if, 10, if uh, 12, uh, sorry, 20 people could do that to millions, then they're geniuses, you know. How many of you know what RT is? RT was, used, was called Russia Today once. It's now called RT. And to those who are in the social media sphere, of course, RT means retweet. So when you go into your hotel room or when you go into your cable system at home, I invite you to look to see whether RT is on your cable menu because you'll find in a surprising number of places, well, this is the Kremlin talking to you. And there are familiar faces on this channel. Now, these may not be familiar faces, uh, but Larry King is on this channel, formerly of CNN. Ed Schultz was on this channel, now deceased. But in 2016, you could see him as well. So there are people who watch RT and haven't realized that this is actually an outlet that was once called Russia Today. So when RT has commentary about my book, that for me is a brand new experience. Now, it didn't exactly get my argument right, but nonetheless, I just want to say I was thrilled Thank you, Kremlin. <laughs> to set up the argument I'm going to try to make, I'd like to show you another clip. This is Mike Huckabee. That, yes, everybody agrees that there was some untoward action by Russian actors, potentially linked directly to the Russian government, but to make the leap that they somehow changed the election results is a big one. That, that's beyond any belief. I mean, you have to believe in unicorns to go there. The fact is... There was allegations that the Russians may have hacked into the DNC computers, but there's no evidence whatsoever that it had any impact on the election. My God. Okay, so if over here we have, do unicorns exist? And over here we have, the Russians absolutely categorically did it. My arguments, unicorns over here, Russians absolutely categorically did, kind of look like this. What did the trolls, the imposters in cyberspace, the people who are pretending they were U.S. nationals do? Well, they probably get us into this realm of certainty. Unicorns certainly did it, because I don't know whether their targeting was precise enough to reach the voters in, this, in the needed states. The platforms know, but they haven't released the data. So about here, unicorns, absolute certainty. Trolls, hackers, more certainty because we know they changed the media agenda. And we have some polling data to suggest that they may have done it in consequential ways. And we have pretty strong theory that says that when you change a media agenda and you change the criteria people are using as a result in assessing a candidate, that can influence votes. We also know that when you create imbalances in messages, so there's now more negative messaging about one candidate, that's where you get communication effects, which is why we don't usually see them in campaigns. Usually communication makes very little difference, and it makes it on the margins, because both sides advertise, message, speak, talk to constituencies that are roughly equal in the population, 
at comparable levels. And they pretty much balance each other out. So if someone else comes into this equation and pushes up the message balance, that's where we see changes. And we saw that historically in 2000. We saw it again in 2008. So when there's a message imbalance, that's when you see communication effects. If the Russian hackers created a message imbalance by getting more negative information into the media stream about Hillary Clinton, or the trolls did the same in some people's social media feeds, that's where you'd expect to shift votes. Not massive numbers, but enough numbers that on the margin you could change an election. And then unicorns here, over here, absolute certainty, trolls here, hackers here. If Russian disinformation influenced James Comey's decision to make public the analysis of the the Clinton server on the Wiener laptop, the materials on the Wiener laptop to figure out what had come from Clinton's server. If the Russian disinformation played a role in his decision to make that public, which in essence he did by notifying Congress because it became it was leaked almost immediately as he would have anticipated it would be, then the case becomes more certain because the effects at the end of the election when those nine days changed the media agenda are pretty clear in the polling data. There's about a two-and-a-half-point shift, and that's the conservative shift. That is, I'm being conservative and saying two and a half points in Hillary Clinton's lead at that point, attributable, as best one can tell, largely to the server coverage and the coverage of the Comey investigation. So certainty, unicorns, trolls, hackers, Russian disinformation. Now pause for a moment and say, if Kathleen is going to make an argument that this could have created an effect, this could have, and this could have, there are any number of combinations of those things that would increase the likelihood that there was an effect. So this isn't an argument that says this alone or this alone or this alone, although in the Comey case I think there's a very strong argument that if Russian disinformation were there, that alone could have. But rather that there's enough there that the argument becomes more plausible if the theory of communication is sound and if the message imbalances are actually created. So that's the argument that I'm going to make. And I'm going to make it based on research that the scholarly community has done and that I've done with my colleagues over the years. We were, had the good fortune of being in the field with what's called a rolling cross-section in 2000. And all that means is we were in the field surveying every single day. So rather than aggregating up five days of data and then saying we know in these five days this is basically where the public was, we had a random sample every single day. And it means that we could watch day-to-day -day changes in the electorate across time. We had over 100,000 interviews from 2000. It was the largest survey the academic community had ever run up to that time. And it's an incredibly close election, and it's an election in which one candidate wins the popular vote, one candidate wins the Electoral College. And we had the advantage in that election, because we didn't have social media yet, of being able to say that when advertising is being used in a campaign, it's over here in the battleground. It's not over here in the non-battleground. So what that means is we could actually see what happens when you've got advertising versus not advertising and comparable kinds of voters. And there was one more advantage the 2000 handed us. In the last week of the campaign, you had the breaking news that there was a DUI back in George Bush's record. And as a result, in the last week of that campaign, he basically went silent on television. He was only in the, ne the network evening news one night. Now, not one night. Now, remember, that's an area in which we still had major broadcast networks that were giving time to candidates and discussing serious issues substance. 
And so Al Gore took advantage of every one of those weekday nights that open access to talk to candidates about issues. Meantime, George W. Bush did not, with the exception of one day. And in those environments, George Bush was hammered by Al Gore on the Social Security issue, where the question was, was George Bush going to shortchange Social Security with his private investment accounts or not, or his personal savings accounts, depending on which construction you were going to use linguistically of their two positions. And so what happens in that environment is you've got a message imbalance. You've got a lot of exposure for Gore in news across the whole population, less so for Bush. Whereas in the battleground states, battleground, non-battleground, you could compare what advertising is doing in one and not the other. And then here's the third thing we had. Gore ran out of money at the end of that campaign. And as a result, in key battleground states, including Florida, he was underspending Bush. And as a result, again, we get to look at the effect of message imbalances. So when we were looking at those message imbalances, we drew the conclusion that what shifted the votes on the margin and helped Gore nationally, help, hence helped him win the popular vote, was the difference in messaging in news over a week. What helped Bush win the Electoral College was the imbalance in advertising. That's one of the reasons when we came into the 2008 campaign, again the same model, we were looking at specific messages in advertising and asking when candidate Obama outspent candidate McCain, and he did dramatically, could we see that message pushed up inside our polling data? Because again, we're in the field every day, and we actually matched up the voting data to the advertising data, data for cable, for television, and for radio. Remember, social media is not yet a big factor. And we're able to show that as the amount of Obama messaging went up, he began to push votes in his direction on the margin, specifically through those issues that he was advertising on. So that's the backdrop for saying, when you see these imbalances in 2016, we have a reason to think imbalances matter. And then the question is, were there imbalances in a situation in which we assume all the other things that were going to happen were going to happen, they're not going to change, and was that imbalance created by the Russians? I'm going to argue that the Russian trolls, those are the marauders in cyberspace, had a sound theory of the election, and I'm going to argue that the hackers affected the press agenda. And my theory is going to be that they changed it in ways that created message imbalances and changed, in the case of news, the kinds of things that we people were focused on, because we have another finding from the scholarly literature that says when something becomes more important to you, you're more likely to use it in assessing candidates. We don't use every possible consideration when we're trying to figure out how to vote. We use the ones that are top of mind, that are most salient to us. And those things are put in place in part by forms of communication. So I'm going to argue their theory was sound, hackers affected, press agenda. Let's start with the trolls. They magnified fears of cultural change. They targeted voters they needed to target. That is, they tried to mobilize evangelicals and veterans. They tried to demobilize black voters and Sanders supporters. And they tried to shift young liberal Sanders supporters and those who were disaffected with Hillary Clinton off rather than they're casting a Democratic vote to Jill Stein. Is this theory consistent with Donald Trump's needs electorally? I started out very, very skeptical of the notion that someone in St. Petersburg could figure out how to influence an election here. When the Washington Post asked me to write the op-ed, which was actually the genesis of this book, it did so because the social media platforms in late October, early November 2017 
were beginning to disclose the advertising content on their sites. And the Washington Post said, well, you've studied all this kind of stuff. Can you answer the question, did this help elect Donald Trump? That's how I wrote this book. I started out by saying to the Washington Post, well, I'll look at the evidence and see. But I was really doubtful until I looked at the ads. And to my surprise, found out they had a theory of what Donald Trump needed, or on the other side, what one needed to do with Hillary Clinton, that was really electorally sound. Specifically, if Donald Trump couldn't mobilize white evangelical Christians and white Catholics, at least roughly to the Romney level, and if he couldn't mobilize military households and veterans, at least to the Romney level, then he wasn't going to win the Electoral College or the popular vote. And if you look at the statistics in August, he's way below where he needs to be with both of those constituencies. Well, the trolls went after those constituencies and tried to swing them against Hillary Clinton. And I was surprised to see that. If you wanted to hurt Hillary Clinton and depress her vote, the constituencies she needed most were black voters. She didn't need to get to the Obama level, but she needed to get somewhere in that range. And I was surprised to see that they spent most of their effort here trying to demobilize African-American voters. And then you'd want to demobilize the Sanders supporters. You want to make sure she can't get her coalition put back together after the primaries. And just to be sure that you're shifting enough people away from her, so if they're not going to vote for Trump, there's a move to shift to Stein. That also surprised me, because you'd expect if they were going to shift someplace, they'd shift toward Gary Johnson, because he's going to get more votes on average. The Libertarians have a bigger constituency on average than does the Green Party. So they were pretty savvy in their understanding of what the electoral needs were of Donald Trump or the potential electoral liabilities that needed to activate were about Hillary Clinton. They also were tied into the Trump message structures in ways that were very consistent with Donald Trump's messaging. They're largely not putting new messages into play through the trolls in in cyberspace. They're largely taking existing messages that are already in the conservative and more right-wing media sphere, and they're amplifying it. They're making it more salient. And they're doing it in ways that are consistent with what Donald Trump is saying. They also targeted voters they needed to target, and that's the argument I just made. So here's some survey data about a dominant constituency that Donald Trump needed to reach. I'm going to let you read it because, as I tell my students, you can read more rapidly than I speak. My students say they doubt that, but (laughs) I don't. So those who believe the U.S. needs protecting against foreign influence are 3.5 times more likely to favor Trump than those who did not share those concerns. Nearly two-thirds of white working class say American culture has gotten worse since the 50s. 68% say the U.S. is in danger of losing its identity. 62% say the growing number of immigrants threatens the country. More than half say discrimination against whites has become just as problematic as discrimination against minorities. Now, Donald Trump didn't create these attitudes. These attitudes are there. The question is, did he harness them? And the answer is yes. If you held these attitudes, you were more likely to support Donald Trump rather than Hillary Clinton. So if the trolls are coming in with messages consistent with this, they're not only being consistent with Donald Trump, but they're being consistent with his electoral needs to reach these voters. Fears of cultural change. Now let me pause for a moment to talk about the nature of social media. In a social media environment, we are highly likely to be talking with people who are like us ideologically. Not all of us, but most of us. It's an environment that tends to draw together people who already agree with things. And they don't necessarily live anywhere near each other. 
but they get into communities in which they like and share things in common. So it becomes an area of, in cyberspace in which people are likely to relay things to each other that they're already disposed to believe, and in the process, they're more likely to share with other people who are just outside that sphere by talking to them in a kind of two-step flow phenomenon. A colleague of mine at the University of Pennsylvania with one of his colleagues at Northwestern demonstrated that within the past year. So getting materials online doesn't just influence the people who get them, it also influences the people who are talked to by the people who get them. And in cyberspace, you've got a tendency to like and share without really processing things very deeply. We move very quickly when we see an evocative image to hit like, to hit share. And if you see that lots of people already like it and lots of people are sharing, you're more likely to think that you like and share it and you're quicker to share the material. So what happens in an environment in which someone takes bots, which are automatic processes, and amplifies that material by creating the illusion that lots of people like this? Those aren't actually humans liking, those are bots liking. And the bots are creating a sense that this is now normative. This is something that everybody accepts inside this community. Well, what you're doing essentially is creating an environment that's ripe for anger, fear, prejudice, anger, negative emotions, and that is self-reinforcing and that can, in the process, increase the likelihood that those just outside those immediate social circles get some impact. And that's my theory of how the social media environment has changed politics. In the past, when you had something in print, it took time to read it in print, and then it took time to share it with someone else. It was a slower process. Doesn't mean you didn't share it, doesn't mean it didn't influence you, but it didn't have a kind of quick visceral movement that it has right now. And you saw something in print and you couldn't say, gee, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, people agree that this is really great content. There just wasn't that kind of social structure around the sharing to create a sense that we all adopt this. So in that environment, you get a kind of persuasive power and you get what some call a contagion effect. So they magnified fears of cultural change, they targeted the voters they needed, and now let me talk about those voters. I'm just gonna show you materials. They started with benign appeals, and that helps aggregate the audience. So to the extent that you like this, you probably like this kind of content, you probably identify with Jesus, now I've got you identified. And now I can use a look-alike function in social media to figure out what other people, where other people like you are. So I can start to identify the people who like this kind of content. One of the things that people assume mistakenly when they approach this book is that I'm going to make the argument that the Trump campaign had to have coordinated in order to make this happen. And I'm actually going to argue the opposite. Because built into the social media structure are those ways to reach people that made it possible for someone in St. Petersburg, once you knew who to reach, to reach them very easily. It didn't require any coordination. You had to figure out how to get the initial message in and then use a lookalike function to find people who were like that and aggregate those people up. And you also had to find a way to figure out who did Donald Trump need to influence. Well, I wrote a book called Spiral of Cynicism with my colleague Joe Capella, and I can tell you that you don't need insider information to figure out which candidate needs which voters and where they are, our media do a great job of making us into campaign consultants. 
They spend more time telling us things that are useless to voters but helpful to campaign consultants than they do just about anything else. And what Joe and I showed in a book called Spiral of Cynicism is that tactical structure of coverage activates cynicism and depresses learning. But it does something else. It means if you can read English and you're in St. Petersburg, you've got a guidebook to who, for who you have to reach. You didn't have to be smart and know anything about the electorate, although they did send some folks over here who learn such things as you want, to, you want to work inside purple states. They didn't really have to come here to find that out, but nonetheless, you could figure out by reading our media. And so I've got pages and pages of the book in which I just quote literally from media outlets about what you have to do in Florida, what you have to do in Pennsylvania, who you have to reach, who you shouldn't try to reach, who's already being successfully reached. You've got the capacities of the social media, and you've got the information that you need tactically sitting inside our media structures. And then they stole the Clinton playbook. They had, they had the turnout models for the key states and for the entire Clinton campaign. So we know they hacked it and had it. Presumably when, when the hackers got it, they shared it with the trolls. I don't know that for certain people. I will bet, given the centralization of the Kremlin, they probably did figure out how they're going to pass that through. So with any of that, there was no need for any coordination in order to accomplish everything that I'm showing you here. doesn't mean there wasn't. It just means you didn't have to have it in order to see what I'm seeing as a pattern. Now we're going to start moving. Clear issue identification. More clear issue identification. Mobilizing veterans. This is taking a statement by Hillary Clinton out of context, but it's a commonly used statement in the conservative media. Mobilizing veterans. Mobilizing veterans. This is an ad that's aired by an independent expenditure committee in the United States. This is not Russians. There is so much at stake in this election, and that's why I'm supporting Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is honest and trustworthy, and can we cut? Cut. What's the problem? I can't say these words. What do you mean? I just don't believe what I'm saying. Okay, but you're an actress. I'm not that good of an actress. Honest and trustworthy. Give me a break. Make America number one is responsible for the content of this advertising. Okay. The ad was sponsored by Defeat Crooked Hillary Clinton Pack, backed by Steve Bannon championing billionaire Robert Mercer. Breitbart, run by Bannon, featured the same still photo from the video. That was featured by the Russian troll account, at 10 underscore GOP, which shared the ad. And their tweet was then retweeted by Michael Flynn. Now, what does this show you? There's a synergy that takes existing content and then amplifies it up tries to expand its reach, in this case, to try to demobilize African-American voters. More demobilization attempts. Sanders supporters. Sanders obviously didn't say that. And Stein. I find Stein, of all of these pieces, the most interesting. Because once you look back, things become more obvious than they are when you're actually working in the campaign. I would have expected that they would have tried to mobilize people and shift them over to try to get the libertarian and to go to the libertarians. But instead, it's to Jill Stein. Here's an appeal. Choose peace and vote for Jill Stein. Trust me, it's not a wasted vote. The only way to take our country back is to stop voting for the corporations and banks that own us. Grow a spine. Vote Jill Stein. Here's the search. Then by a news outlet, a search of RT and Sputnik. Archives shows that more than 100 stories, both on air and online, were friendly to Stein and the Green Party. 
That's interesting. And if you'll think about the picture you've seen of Michael Flynn with Vladimir Putin, if you look at the rest of that picture, you'll see Jill Stein was at the same dinner. That's an anniversary dinner for RT. So suddenly, this, the move to Stein makes sense because Stein is more hospitable to some Russian views than would Gary Johnson have been. So there is some logic behind the move to get people to shift over to Stein. That said, if you take the baseline vote for Jill Stein, and this is convenient because she was the candidate of the party four years before, and so you've got the same candidate, which means you can kind of control what people thought about the candidate. If you take the difference between her vote and 2012, and assume 2012 is her base level of support, given a traditional Democratic and Republican nominee, and you look at the difference between that and the vote that she got in the three key battleground states, in two out of those three states, the difference alone would have been enough to shift those states. So there's not an insubstantial increase in support for Stein. Now, maybe there's something else going on out there that I haven't seen, but I haven't seen it. And if you did, please share it with me, because we're really interested to figure out where did that mobilization come from? We do know that the Russians were trying to help her. So this is what I've argued so far. The trolls' theory of the election was sound. Now, what I don't know about the trolls is whether their targeting was precise enough. I know it could have been because they had access to the voter playbook that would have made that possible. But I don't know that that happened. And so my argument for them is over here in my continuum. It's a more tentative argument. Let's look at the hackers. The hackers affected the Democrats around the Democrat National Convention. And what they were doing at that point was putting out information that suggested that Sanders supporters should not stay with the Democratic ticket. They affected the news agenda before the presidential debate on October 9th. That's the second debate. They affected the agenda throughout the month of October, and they affected the agenda during the last two debates, and then they affected the agenda, I would argue, but not through the hacked content, but through the illusion of having hacked content in the last 11 days, if they influenced that Comey decision. So let's first look at the convention. First effect. The material that suggests that there was a thumb on the scale at the DNC against Sanders, hacked content, is released, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz resigns. Well, that's a disruption. And as Hillary Clinton is trying to consolidate the Democratic base, content from Democratic operatives is now being released, suggesting that they were inhospitable to Bernie Sanders, and that can't be helping as Hillary Clinton tries to consolidate that base. You also know that there was a real threat by the Sanders support, supporters at the convention to just simply walk out at one point. Also, you began to see hacked information being used to try to discredit the Clinton Foundation. So there's a second track of information that begins to come out at this point. The debate. Sorry, the news agenda before the second debate. October 7th is a really important day in 2016. And I'm sure that one of the things that you will remember, although you may not remember as October 7th, is some vulgar statements by candidate Trump. Some language that had never gotten into news before got into news, including grab them by and I will not repeat the rest of the sentence. The Access Hollywood tape breaks on that day, but that's not the first news event of the day. The first news event is one that says that the Office of Defense Intelligence has made an announcement along with Homeland Security that says that the Russians were behind the hacking. That's major news. You'd reasonably say that's going to be above the fold and that's going to lead the newscasts for the weekend. 
And the question would be, how do you know that intelligence community? After all, you do work for Barack Obama. Can we really trust this? And presumably we would have that as a debate. And also ask, well, if it's accurate, why would they want to hurt Hillary Clinton? So the first news event of the day is that. The second is the Access Hollywood tape. This is why October 7th is such an intriguing day. Now you've got an event that under ordinary circumstances would tank a campaign. Very serious you know, video allegations. Remember what it took to end the candidacy of Gary Hart. We now have a movie about that. And within an hour of the time that that story breaks in the Washington Post, we have a third news event of the day, and this is the one that the Mueller investigation appears to be focused on. We get the hacked materials from Podesta that are released at first tranche. First tranche comes out. Now, the news folks have a choice. They've got intelligence community, at least two parts of it, have said Russians did the hacking. News story one. News story two They've got Access Hollywood, what's more irresistible than sex and vulgarity? And three, they've got hacked content, and what has been hacked and released are segments of speeches that Bernie Sanders wanted to see all through the primaries. So there's inherent newsworthiness inside those hacked segments, assuming they really are hacked segments and they're accurately representing what Hillary Clinton said. Importantly, they're segments, by the way, they are not entire speeches. So what would you guess the news media would do? Well, I would have guessed that they take story one, the Russians did the hacking, move it over into story three and say, the Russians hacked content has just been released in the form of speech excerpts, and they look like this. Now they'd have two news stories, Access Hollywood versus Russian hacked content just released, Podesta email content, <coughs> here are the hacked speeches. They didn't. They lost the first narrative. So print news covered it below the fold. But by the time we get to Sunday, it's gone. The Russian origins are gone. And for the rest of the campaign, the press is going to treat the Russian hacked content as WikiLeaks, as WikiLeaked content. Now, I want you to think for a moment what the implications are of saying it's from WikiLeaks. Because WikiLeaks has put things in public domain that some in this room probably approve of, you know, things that the government probably didn't want us to see. The news has treated WikiLeaks as a quasi-legitimate news outlet in the past when it released those kinds of things. And when you say WikiLeaks, people don't hear Russians as a result. That's a name that's been around for a while. And what people also don't hear is Julian Assange doesn't like Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton wanted him prosecuted for what she considered his misuse of national security data when he released some of that other material earlier. earlier. So you'd think the press would be saying WikiLeaks run by Julian Assange who doesn't like Hillary Clinton. No. You'd think they'd say, WikiLeaks passing Russian hacked content through. They didn't. We would interpret the content differently if we kept it tied to the source. Now, some people might say, well, I like Julian Assange. I like Russians, at which point they might be more approving of the content. But some people might ask the question, why are they doing this? What is their interest in this? And should some of this be discounted on those grounds? Because there's nothing comparable in being done with Donald Trump. This isn't like press leaking, where the press will find anything it can from anybody and try to get it out there. This is asymmetric. It's happening only on one side, and it's tactical. It's being used in this case to blunt the effects of the Access Hollywood tape, which it effectively did that weekend by creating a counterbalanced narrative. We know from the Woodward book that inside the Trump campaign, there was active consideration of moving Pence to the top of the ticket and moving Condoleezza Rice into the vice presidential spot. It was that serious. 
So what helps blunt the Access Hollywood tape? Hacked content dropped strategically and the press creates a counterbalanced narrative that looks like this. I'm Chris Wallace, explosive leaks just before the second presidential debate. More hacked emails that show what Hillary Clinton really told those big bankers. And Donald Trump apologizing after release of a tape of him making lewd remarks about women. Key Republicans are fleeing the campaign and saying he should step aside. We'll assess the damage with Trump advisor Rudy Giuliani. And as some of Hillary Clinton's speeches to Wall Street banks are leaked, we'll talk to campaign manager Robbie Mook about how she'll handle the fallout. That's, by the way, a tactical frame. What are the implications tactically for the two candidates? But notice what you're not hearing. Intelligence community confirms Russians did the hacking. Russians are the origin or Julian Assange through WikiLeaks or both of the hacked speech content. So that counterbalance narrative plays some role in helping Donald Trump survive that weekend. We don't know how big the role is, but we know it played some role. Imagine that that third piece in the narrative isn't there at all. So the hacked Podesta content is not dropped within an hour of the Access Hollywood tape. Coming into the, the Sunday of the debate, two days after October 7th, October 9th, you'd have the Russians hacked and you'd have Access Hollywood two anti-Trump stories. Instead, first drops and you get a counterbalanced narrative. What, was, what use was made of the content? So John, what's her real view? Crack down on big money or kiss up to them? And there's now a counterbalanced narrative and the narratives, what's the real Hillary Clinton? What are we seeing in these speeches as opposed to the fake Hillary Clinton who is saying other things in public? What is the real Donald Trump? This is a public-private narrative about both. Is this merely a locker room banter, which is what Trump and his associates allege, or is this, in fact, sexual admissions of sexual assault, which is what Clinton supporters are alleging? So this is a public self versus private self narrative for both of them, but it's counterbalanced. The agenda throughout the month of October. What happens with WikiLeaks as opposed to what happens with Access Hollywood? Well, here's number of articles mentioning WikiLeaks in headlines by outlet. You see substantial play in conservative media, but you see a respectable level of play in mainstream media. And it's during this period that you see between the first two bars that we find a drop in perception that Hillary Clinton is qualified to be president. So the question is, what was in the news agenda during this period that might have explained that shift? One possible explanation is, it is the WikiLeaks content that is getting substantial exposure. Clinton scandal coverage, the first two bars in yellow, that's where her drop, the drop in perception of qualification is. This last period, with the big jump in green, that's that Comey end period, where for nine of 11 days, you've got negative Clinton headlines and news about speculation about what's on the Wiener laptop. What happens to Access Hollywood? The bottom line is Access Hollywood. The top line is WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks, because it continued to drop tranche after tranche after tranche, managed to keep itself in the news cycle for the rest of the election. Here's the effect on qualified to be president. Here's a change in qualified to be president, which I would hypothesize has something to do with this. 
affected the agenda during the last two debates. Here's the speech excerpt of Hillary Clinton. She says, you just have to sort of figure out how to get back to the word balance, how to balance the public and private efforts that are necessary to be successful politically, and that's just not a comment about today. If you saw the movie Lincoln and how he was maneuvering and working to get the 13th Amendment passed, and he called one of my favorite predecessors, Secretary Seward, who had just been governor and senator from New York, ran against Lincoln for president, and he told Seward, I need your help to get this done. But if everybody's watching, you know, all the backroom discussions and the deals, you know, then people get a little nervous, to say the least. So you need both a public and private position. That statement was not a statement that said, hey, Wall Street banks, I'm going to tell you something in private. I'm going to get rid of Dodd-Frank. When publicly I'm telling everybody I'm going to be tough on you. This is a statement made in the context of discussion of a Lincoln film. Here's the debate question. This question involves WikiLeaks release of purported excerpts of Secretary Clinton's paid speeches, which she has refused to release, and one line in particular in which you, Secretary Clinton, purportedly say you need both a public and private position on certain issues. So, two from Virginia asks, is it okay for politicians to be two-faced? Is it acceptable for a politician to have a private stance on issues. Secretary Clinton, look, your two minutes. Right. As, as I recall, that was uh, something I said about Abraham Lincoln uh, after having seen the wonderful Steven Spielberg movie called Lincoln. It was a master class watching President Lincoln get the Congress to approve the 13th Amendment. It was principled and it was strategic. And I was making the point that it is hard sometimes to get the Congress to do what you want to do, and you have to keep working at it. And yes, President Lincoln was trying to convince some people, he used some arguments, convincing other people, he used other arguments. That uh, was a great, uh, uh, I thought, a great uh, display of presidential leadership. But, you know, let's talk about what's really going on here, Martha, because our intelligence community just came out and said in the last few days that the Kremlin, meaning Putin and the Russian government, are directing the attacks, the hacking on American accounts to influence our election. And WikiLeaks is part of that, as are other sites where the Russians hack information, we don't even know if it's accurate information, and then they put it out. We have never in the history of our country been in a situation where an adversary, a foreign power, is working so hard to influence the outcome of the election, and believe me, they're not doing it to get me elected. They're doing it to try to influence the election for Donald Trump. Now maybe... Now she's blaming, she got caught in a total lie. Her papers went out to all her friends at the banks, Goldman Sachs, and everybody else. And she said things, WikiLeaks, that just came out. And she lied. Now she's blaming the lie on the late, great Abraham Lincoln. That's one that I have. Okay, honest Abe. Honest Abe never lied. That's the good thing. That's the big difference between Abraham Lincoln and you. That's a big, big difference. We're talking about some difference. But as far as other elements of what she was saying. I don't know, Putin. 
I think it would be great if we got along with Russia because we could fight ISIS together as an example, but I don't know. Who. But I notice anytime anything wrong happens, they like to say the Russians, the Russians, she doesn't know if it's the Russians doing the hacking. Maybe there is no hacking. But they always blame Russia. And the reason they blame Russia is because they think they're trying to tarnish me with Russia. I know nothing about Russia. I know I know about Russia, but I know nothing about the inner workings of Russia. I don't deal there. I have no businesses there. I have no loans from Russia. And that's how we get to today. To find out what the impact of those statements and debates was through our polling data, I encourage you to take a look at the book. To find out the, what the argument is about Comey disinformation, I encourage you to take a look at the book. The argument is that the hacking affected the debate agenda, the hacking affected the news agenda, the hacking minimized the likelihood that Sanders supporters would be consolidated behind Clinton and disrupted the campaign. And the question is, to what extent was the extent great enough to shift 78,000 votes? I'd be happy to take your comments and your questions. <coughs> or not. <laughs> yes, ma'am. What do you think really motivated Coleman to come out with that information at the last minute? We know that from the public record from Director Comey that there were two factors at play for him in making the unprecedented decision to make the July announcement about closing the Clinton investigation without charging. Ordinarily, you would expect that they simply would indicate that they're not charging and pass some paperwork. One was the meeting between Bill Clinton and Loretta Lynch in the tarmac. And the second was information that he is not free to disclose in public, which is classified information, which press coverage would suggest is information in Russian hands that suggests that Loretta Lynch gave assurances to Clinton supporters in some fashion that the investigation would not go too far. There's no reason to believe, based on press accounts, that Loretta Lynch knows the person she supposedly communicated with or that the others who were relaying the information had done that either. There is, as a result, every reason to suspect that the information that he says he was concerned would be released imminently was, in fact, Russian disinformation. So if the second classified factor is Russian disinformation in the summer decision, then the question is, is that not still at play in October when they could have quietly undertaken the investigation of the contents of the Wiener laptop and not disclosed the fact that they were doing it? And if you believe that it is likely that Hillary Clinton is going to be president of the United States, which we know Director Comey has said he believed based on polling data was likely. It is at least plausible that he was trying to protect the integrity of her election by ensuring that the fact of the investigation of the server was not released after she became elected. And the country then say, but wait a minute, we would have changed our vote had we known that. And so that is my argument for the information being Russian disinformation at time one, and if it was, being at play as well at time two. Otherwise, I don't see why he would make the statement, in essence, public by going to the Congress. Yes? So you started out by saying it was going to be a discouraging talk, as I recall. Did I disappoint you? <laughs> Not in the least. So I thought uh, you would now tell us uh, what should be done to minimize the effect of this, of the social media um, campaigns in our political process. The social media platforms were just sitting ducks for this. 
I mean, their targeting structures are such that you, you did not need sophistication to know how to engage in sophisticated targeting. I've studied political communication for a long time. After each major election, I sit down with the time buyers up until this last election to say, tell me exactly how you targeted the time buy. It was a very sophisticated art. And they would explain how they micro-targeted this and they cross-targeted that, and the radio did this in relationship to the cable, in relation to the television, after which we would create charts and graphs that would try to capture it in order to put it into our studies. We don't need to do any of that to understand how you could reach exactly the same people right now because we could have ourselves, with the knowledge that was publicly accessible, done sophisticated targeting at a level of sophistication higher than time buyers were engaged in in previous elections. That's how vulnerable the social platforms were. And they were because they weren't set up for politics. They were set up for advertisers to target us. So if you're not paying for something, you're the product. Essentially, they're selling us. And in the process, they've got a highly sophisticated means of knowing that when the ads start following you around, you've noticed that they were, you search to find one thing, and then for the next couple of weeks, all the ads for those things follow you around? Well, imagine that you take all that sophistication and you drive it behind some simple instructions to get to evangelicals, to get to military households, to get to African Americans, to get to Sanders supporters, etc., and the structures are just sitting there to deliver. So first they fixed that. So it's more difficult to make those kinds of targeting moves right now as an outsider. Um, secondly, you could buy advertising, and it's illegal for a foreign national to buy advertising in our elections, but you could do it inside these platforms because everything is so anonymized and so digital. And so one of the Mueller indictments is indicting people for illegal purchasing of identities and illegal bank conduct that ultimately bought the ads. Now what they've done is set up a structure so that you have to provide in one case a social security number and another a business ID number, and there's a verification process to confirm that you're buying from within the United States. So they're trying to make moves to shut this down. If you went onto YouTube during the election, you would have found all kinds of RT content, but you wouldn't have known RT is formerly Russia Today and that it's state-sponsored. Now when you go on YouTube, you will find RT is government-sponsored content, and you'll find PBS has government funding and BBC. So what they've done is universalize the disclosure, but now we've got more protection because now we can tie source back to content. As I said earlier, you might say, I love the Russians. Propaganda is me all you want. At least you now know it's the Russians who are doing it. So we've got those kinds of changes in place. There also are now partnerships with the fact-checking organizations, and I am ultimately the director of factcheck.org. Eugene Kiley runs it in practice, but my policy center directs it, so I sign off on all of it. We are now part of a partnership that, that takes crowdsourced disinformation, checks it to say, is it accurate or not, and we post up content through Facebook. When someone searches for it, they get our correction over to the right in the search structure. That's an attempt to dampen down the effects of disinformation without infringing on political speech. Big issue here is how do you try to get more information in an environment which really privileges the First Amendment and ought to in every way that is possible. So there are moves that have been made by the platforms. They're not enough, but they certainly are there. We are better protected than we were in the past. I'm concerned that we haven't heard from our big reputable media outlets what they would do differently if exactly the same thing happened again. After they've made big mistakes in the past, they've actually written editorials to say to us, we really made a mistake and here's how we've learned. They haven't said that about their use of the hacked content. In some cases, they simply got the hacked content wrong. That's just bad journalism. But in the pressure of having 
thousands and thousands of thousands of things dumped on them with all those resources rushing to find things that they presumed were newsworthy, you can see how they would make that mistake. Humans make mistakes under that kind of pressure. And so I'd like to hear from our, our reporters and our big reporting companies that this, this hacking could have been against Republicans or against Democrats. I would have guessed in the past if you said the Russians are going to intervene, they'd intervene to, to disadvantage the Republican, not the Democrat, which is on average going to be true of Russian relationships ideologically to the two political parties. So instead of you know, people you know, thinking that, oh, well, it was just the platforms, we've got to get that under control, I'd like them also to say a big effect of the hackers was mediated by our press. The hackers would have had no real effect if it hadn't gotten that content into news. So I'd like to see what is done differently. In the Comey situation, I think the Russians may have effectively checkmated him. Um, if you believe that you're going to have the FBI and the Justice Department discredited by information in Russian hands, and just set up the possibility that, that, that you're trying to set this up in order to make it really hard for Director Comey to have any good choices. First, you'd make sure the hacked content that is released is accurate so that nobody could say, well, this must be inaccurate if something is dumped that is disinformation. The hacked content is, as far as we know, accurate. There may be a couple of exceptions, but as far as we know, the major pieces of hacked content that were released through WikiLeaks are accurate. And you'll see at the beginning of my book, I've got a statement quoting uh, President Putin that essentially says, what's wrong with hacking? It was accurate, wasn't it? We should worry about those people who are trying to manipulate the American people which I think is one of the funnier statements that I have read in the last two years. But what that says to me is there's a strategy there. Protect the accuracy of that so that when you drop the disinformation, its accuracy will be assumed. And given how polarized we are, if disinformation had been dropped to say that Loretta Lynch was in the tank for the Clinton administration, don't you think a good part of the population would have believed it and we would have called an election into question? So what was the good choice under those circumstances? if that is the circumstance Director Comey found himself in. And if he thought that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected anyway, then the path that makes the most sense is one in which you make sure the public knows that you're, in fact, engaging in the investigation. And the investigation could have come out in a way that was, was negative for, for Hillary Clinton. Who knew what was going to be in those emails as a result of that investigation? But at least it was public, and as a result, you couldn't discredit her if she were elected. And, of course, if she weren't elected, there, you didn't have to worry. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be a discrediting. But I think he might have made a different calculation had the polls not suggested strongly she was going to be the victor. Yes? Uh, in an earlier pre-social media day, um, if one wanted to influence policymakers, uh, the Post or the Times or the Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. depending on the point of view, uh, would, would have been obvious. In this social media world, um, I come from the earlier day. <laughs> so do uh, I. What, what is the most influential channel or even medium uh, in this new world? Well, first, in a campaign environment, the reason I, I wanted to play the clip for you of the debates, the debates are one of the last venues that we, as Democrats and Republicans and independents, come together to watch in common. So upward of 68 million of direct viewers. Now, that doesn't count all the secondary viewing, and there is substantial secondary viewing, or all the viewing through news pickup of parts of debates. So to the extent that there is one form that is still there, that we get both candidates who have an equal opportunity to make the case, moderated by a respected journalist, I would say the most influential form we've got is debates. 
And debates largely reinforce what people already believe, but that doesn't mean that they are not valuable because they increase the level of accurate information we have about both candidates on average across debates. And the reason for that is, and it's an interesting finding, because those of us who study politics, you think we're not going to learn anything. Well, we do, because you miss some things. And sometimes you know one candidate's position, but you've never heard the other. You get the contrast of point of view. So they're extraordinarily valuable. I wish we could find more venues like that in which we would come together and give people as much unmediated time to communicate with us as they could unfiltered so that we could make our own judgments. I think I am now out of time. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you to folks who are watching through the C-SPAN book channel. And for those of you who are heading out into the cold winter night, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.